this podcast series, episode number two of Topics in Breast Cancer Rehabilitation, Dr. Ashish Hanna presented Cancer-Related Fatigue to the staff at Kessler Foundation on February 8, 2018. Dr. Hanna is a cancer rehabilitation attending physician for Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange, New Jersey. This podcast was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on February 8, 2018, at Kessler Foundation West Orange. Let's listen in. I am uh, board certified in physical medicine rehabilitation. Um, I did my residency at the Kingsbrook Rehabilitation Institute, which is in Brooklyn, New York, and um, I rotated at uh, Sloan Kettering, where Dr. Stubblefield was. Um, after that, I did a cancer rehabilitation fellowship. It was one year, just finished that at, meds, at uh, the National Rehabilitation Hospital, uh, part of Georgetown University. Um, and now I'm here as an attending physician, as Dr. Stubblefield said. So I'll do a little bit of first, start out with a little bit of uh, shameless self-promotion about the need for cancer rehab. Um, and this will be the only time we do this, <laughs> I promise. Um, so uh, the reason that our field really exists is because many patients have been um, successfully cured or are in remission, uh, but they're still living with the effects of cancer and cancer treatments. Um, so we're glad that a lot of people are um, surviving cancer, way more people are surviving cancer than ever have before, uh, but they still have permanent effects. And now cancer is kind of becoming more like a chronic disease, you know, just like a lot of patients used to die of AIDS, and now AIDS is almost like a chronic disease. So cancer, fortunately, is becoming kind of like that, and I hope it continues that trajectory, of course. Um, but um, it's, it is a disease that's likely to be associated with disability or a change in functional status during your cancer treatments and then for many years afterwards as well. So what do we do in cancer rehabilitation? These are physicians um, like Dr. Stubblefield and I. Um, this is just part of it of uh, what we do. It's a sort of a short list. So I'm going to go through all of these today. Just kidding. I'm just going to go through one of them. Um, <laughs> the uh, one we're going to talk about today is fatigue. And I know fatigue is something that a lot of people are familiar with. I'm feeling that a little bit <laughs> today uh, because I stayed up too late to work on these slides and things like that. But um, cancer-related fatigue is actually a little bit different than regular fatigue. So let's just talk about what the differences are. Um, first, cancer-related fatigue has to be fatigue that lasts greater than two weeks um, but is felt every day. This, there's many definitions. There are many definitions. This is the one from the Journal of Clinical Oncology in uh, 2005. Um, it's out of proportion to exertion. It's associated with distress and functional loss. And then, of course, it has to be clinically associated with cancer diagnosis or chemotherapy. And lastly, it has to be uh, not explained by a primary psychiatric diagnosis, like a mood disorder, depression, anxiety, and things like that. So the NCCN, which is the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, for the, those of us who do, uh, don't know, um, they define it as a distressing, persistent, subjective sense of physical, emotional, or cognitive tiredness or exhaustion related to cancer or cancer treatment, not proportional to recent activity, and interferes with the usual functioning. Um, and I'll, I'll break that definition down a little bit. And this is from a lot of what I, in this presentation you're going to see is from the NCCN guidelines uh, from last year, from 2017, um, on cancer-related fatigue. So uh, fatigue is the most common side effect of cancer and cancer treatments. Uh, the percentages, um, you know, the incidence is all over the place, really, but it occurs roughly in 60 to 90 percent of patients. 
Um, it may persist for months or years after successful treatment completion. So this is, these are some pretty dramatic numbers. I think we talked about this in the podcast as well. 30% of breast cancer survivors report fatigue one to five years after diagnosis. And then this one, 63% of fatigued survivors continue to report fatigue five to 10 years after they're diagnosed. So that's over half of the patients. So I thought this was a kind of a little bit of an older article, but I thought this was an interesting one to share. They looked at 538 cancer patients, and they looked at the different points of view. So from the oncologist's point of view, pain was more clinically relevant than fatigue. But let's look at the patient's perspective. They thought that fatigue affected their everyday life more than pain. So we can see that oncologists are focusing more on pain, whereas to the patients, perhaps fatigue is a bigger issue to them. 52% um, of the patients never reported fatigue to the oncologist. They were, it's never mentioned. 14%, only 14% had received treatment or advice on how to manage it, and a third of them declared that they had never received adequate treatment for that they felt for their fatigue. All right, so that's a little bit of an introduction. Let's talk about what causes fatigue. So fatigue is like a very multi-dimensional kind of issue, as you might imagine. Um, there are demographic factors that um, are in play, age, income, marital status. There are psychosocial factors, like we mentioned depression or the catastrophizing uh, coping style. There are health behaviors, your amount of physical activity and cardiopulmonary fitness, of course, will relate to how tired and fatigued you are. Comorbid symptoms, pain, menopausal symptoms, sleep uh, issues. Um, cardiovascular disease, BMI have been found in the research to be related. And then there are the biological factors as well. Um, that we treat, um, you know, in our clinic um, here and elsewhere, such as anemia, inflammation, hypothyroidism, things like that can also um, affect fatigue. So let's talk about inflammation. This is the number one um, cause that is really implicated and has been really explored uh, in the research, and I think, um, or hopefully you guys will find this research somewhat interesting. Um, so uh, inflammation, of course, we know it's the body's response to infect infection or injury. It's mediated by pro-inflammatory cytokines, IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha, and another one called neopterin. I'm going to be focusing mostly on TNF-alpha in the next couple slides. It's the uh, one that's been uh, more thoroughly explored. Um, and it results in local and systemic effects, inflammation does. Not, um, yeah, lo local and systemic, you guys know that. Um, so this is an interesting review article from uh, the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2008. It's a review article talking about the neuroendocrine immune mechanisms of um, behavioral comorbidities in patients with cancer. So here, let me see if I can get this mouse to work. Yeah, here on the left side, um, you can see we have cancer and then it's treatments, and then you see you have the interplay of these uh, different bubbles here, the neuroendocrine system, inflammation, then the sleep-wake cycle. So the neuroendocrine system... Um, here has flattened cortisol, uh, decreased glucocorticoid sensitivities, cortisol responsiveness to stress. That those are all going to be blunted responses. And um, then over here you have the sleep-wake cycle as well, decreased sleep efficiency. And that's these kinds of things are all tied here to this big circle, which is inflammation. And again, like we said, increased pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, acute phase reactants, and things like that. And all these eventually will affect the central nervous system and then ultimately your behavioral alterations, resulting in depression, fatigue, impaired sleep, and cognitive dysfunction. So a little bit more about inflammation. Again, we have tissue trauma, results in inflammation, and then we get the CNS response. So here you can see in this uh, diagram, which I kind of like, um, 
Where's the mouse? Oh, there. Uh, so you have cancer treatments resulting in inflammation, IL-1-6 and TNF-alpha. Um, and then uh, those affect the serotonergic and dopaminergic um, systems in the CNS, resulting in decreased appetite, energy, uh, sleep changes, impaired memory and learning. So TNF is actually increased by chemotherapy. So we have inflammation. Remember, TNF is that marker of inflammation. Um, so this is um, an interesting study from uh, Dr. Gans, um, who uh, has done a lot of great research on fatigue. Um, so um, basically here, this is a prospective longitudinal observational cohort study of early stage breast cancer patients. Um, and the idea here, just to kind of boil it down, is that the chemotherapy o resulted in overall an increase in TNF-alpha. So an increase, if you draw the patient's blood, it shows an increase in inflammation during chemotherapy. Perhaps not that surprising. That's true at all time points. But what's maybe even more surprising is that even at one year later, you can see, um, I'm circling on my screen, but not circling on yours. Um, the, uh, even at 12 months, we have a higher level of these um, inflammatory markers compared to uh, patients with no chemotherapy. Um, so here's a kind of a complicated slide, um, but uh, maybe some of people in this room's uh, brains light up looking at this, like the brains on here are lit up. Um, this is, and you guys probably are going to be better at interpreting this kind of data than me, um, but basically this is showing kind of like an inverse relationship of how TNF-alpha impacts the brain. Um, so here at baseline you can see these are patients with high TNF-alpha at baseline. Um, you can see the, f I think it's the frontoparietal uh, cortex we're looking at here. Um, anyway, um, and then compared here with patients with low TNF-alpha, and you can see that the um, uh, you know, the amount of, uh, what's the best word, somebody tell me, I don't know. The, the amount that this kind of lights up is less. Um, activity. activity, thank you, yes. <laughs> There's, um, uh, with the low activity, uh, sorry, with the high TNF-alpha, you have low at lower activity. And then even at one year, it's not as obvious, but that's also, uh, one year later, it's the same thing. So we see that, you know, these, this increase in inflammation has very real consequences um, that can be visualized. I'll just quickly talk about this too. So there's actually cytokine um, and a genetic variability to this too. So some patients are more prone to cancer-related fatigue just based off their genetics. And that's because they have, they're susceptible to fatigue based on the amount of um, single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs that they have in the promoter regions that code for those particular um, cytokines. Um, so they looked at the different... Um, those different SNPs here. I won't belabor this point too much. Um, but the idea here is that patients who have uh, more high expression alleles for, these promoter for the promoter regions, they have more severe fatigue and cognitive complaints. So I thought this was a pretty interesting article. Um, and then you can actually come up with a genetic risk index, these authors argue, um, that can be significantly, that, that can predict patients that are going to be significantly associated um, with greater fatigue and cognitive changes. So maybe in the future, one day, we may be able to have a genetic test that would predict how bad our patients are going to suffer from fatigue. And, and at that point, we'll be entering the era of personalized medicine, which is very exciting. Um, so this is the NCCN guidelines again here. I've just pasted these in. Um, here what they say is that fatigue should be screened, assessed, and managed according to clinical practice guidelines at the initial visit and on all subsequent visits as well. 
Um, healthcare professionals, okay, good, you can see it. Healthcare professionals experienced in fatigue management. Uh, evaluation and management should be available in a timely manner. Um, they say that um, this care is going to be best accomplished by an interdisciplinary team with referral to appropriate specialists. And then ideally those specialists are rehab. So we have uh, actually physical therapy, occupational therapy, and even physical medicine is on the NCCN guidelines. High five mm -hmm. to Dr. Stubblefield. We, we made it on something. <laughs> uh, usually leave us out of it. Um, so um, why we're able to help? Because we can prevent the functional decline and improve or restore functional outcome. Uh, we're an interdisciplinary specialty. Uh, we try to be patient-centered, and the goals of treatment are really established by the patients. Um, and then we try to do uh, physical and biopsychosocial uh, treatments as well to improve impairments and um, increase the quality of life of our patients. ASCO also has some guidelines um, as well, um, if uh, anybody's interested in reviewing those. I don't know if anybody um, is. But. So what do we do on the primary evaluation for fatigue? Uh, basically what we try to do is we try to do a differential diagnosis. Um, fatigue is really kind of like a diff uh, diagnosis of exclusion. There's no real diagnostic test that we can do um, for cancer-related fatigue. So it's really uh, important to do a thorough evaluation. Um, the first one that we do, uh, I'll just go through these quickly because I, I know there are uh, not too many, uh, I guess, clinic practitioners in the room. But then we have me me medications and side effects. Um, we want to rule out that. As a cause, there's um, the next one, pain and emotional distress. Anemia also results um, in fatigue, so we try to see, um, you know, make sure patients' hemoglobins and try and treat them with iron or whatever type of anemia that they have. Um, sleep hygiene is important. I've done some education with that uh, with patients. Uh, nutrition, and then we want to look at the other comorbidities like depression and things like that and make sure that we're screening the patients for that. Um, so, like I said, to treat it, we do under we f identify and treat the underlying factors, um, and then uh, now the interventions. What can we do? So, the first intervention that we usually do for fatigue would be, uh, not the first, but one of them would be a pharmacologic intervention that includes psychostimulants. There's the behavioral psychological, uh, which is like the psychosocial support. Um, and then exercise, which I know is of particular interest uh, to you guys, and I'm going to talk about that later as well. Um, and then there are the complementary and alternative medicines. So the first are the pharmacologic interventions. I'll go through these quick. The two psychostimulants we use the most are modafinil and provigil. Um, there is evidence for that. I really won't go through it since I don't think it's uh, as relevant for this particular group. Um, and um, the next... Uh, so, we, so there are anti-cytokine therapies as well. Remember, these are the cytokines. The inflammation is up, so we actually have uh, medications that can block pro-inflammatory cytokines. Uh, these kind of medications are already being used for certain things like rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis. And there is, um, oh, here's some examples, uh, infliximab, adalimumab, and etanercept. These are medications that are used in rheumatoid arthritis and some other autoimmune diseases already. And they have been shown to be effective in reducing uh, fatigue. Um, and uh, some promising data to show the beneficial effect uh, for cancer in this cancer patient population specifically. So these are the psychological um, interventions, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, and things like that. I won't um, go through this too much. Um, there are the comp like like we were just talking about. There are the complementary and alternative medicine. Um, in uh, techniques, um, in the interest of time, I won't go through these. I'm not definitely not. Are any of them shown to have like 
in a good steady to have any real benefit. Um, I love them. They're good. Yeah. Yeah, but they're yeah, I, I, exercise and movement largely. Right, yeah. No, the exercise has much stronger evidence. The problem with acupuncture is that doing like sham acupuncture, you, it's hard to do a controlled trial with acupuncture. You know, either you don't do the acupuncture or and the patient know you know if, you, if you're lying on the table you know that nobody's doing acupuncture you can't control for that um, the only thing you can do is put a needle in like a random place and call it sham acupuncture versus real acupuncture so there's there are a lot of problems with research and you know the complementary and alternative realm um, but a lot of patients uh, swear by them and um, yeah I mean I don't I don't think blowing these off is um, warranted because a lot of people do very well uh, with these and are big fans of them. A lot of the patients have, they're taking so many medications already, they're seeing so many doctors, I mean you try to, you want to put them on, on Ritalin or methylphenidate or something, I mean there, a lot of people are like, there's no way I'm gonna start another medication right now. So if they do, you know, acupuncture or yoga or something, then a lot of people are interested in that, so. So I'll talk about the... Ac it may affect their well-being too in some exactly. ways, you know, which yeah. can help with better behavior, more motivation for exercise. And, uh, yeah, and right. And those are things that we can't measure necessarily, you know, with, with uh, numbers and things. So, yeah, totally. Um, so patients with exercise, uh, there's a lot of... It's, I had a tough time actually picking which journal articles to, to use for this section. Um, because there are quite a few, but um, it has been shown that patients that exercise during treatment lo report lower levels of fatigue. Um, it's also shown beneficial effects um, uh, during and then particularly afterwards. So um, the study I have cited here, they looked at a home-based exercise program. Even that led to a small, non-significant reduction. Um, and then there's a supervised aerobic exercise showed a medium significant reduction compared to patients who had no exercise. Exercise interventions overall have been shown to decrease the incidence of breast, colon, and prostate cancer. I'm talking about a Cochrane. These are based off the Cochrane review done in 2012. Um, this, they've shown to improve. I'm summarizing those articles. Um, the two there uh, below. It improves long-term survival in breast and colon cancer. It decreases local recurrence in prostate cancer. And then they summarized uh, their findings in the Cochrane Review saying exercise during cancer treatment demonstrates positive effects in physical functioning, social functioning, and reduces fatigue. So with any exercise intervention, you know the literature, you guys know, um, everybody in this room knows, that um, they, they tend to be you know, kind of all over the place. And because one of the biggest questions is what dose of exercise are we talking about? Um, so I kind of use the CDC guidelines for physical activity. Other people may use other things. Um, they say that 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity aerobic exercise, that's a brisk walk where you can still hold a conversation, plus two days a week of strengthening exercises, or 75 minutes a week of a more vigorous intensity aerobic exercise with the two days a week of strengthening exercise. And that is specific for cancer or just the guideline for just a guideline for exercise, yeah, overall, just from the CDC, not related to cancer, yeah. Um, I thought this was kind of interesting, too. A lot of the, um, you know, we have more and more devices that have to do with quantified self, right? You're wearing a Fitbit or wearing those kinds of devices. Um, and there was one study um, from 2007, not, not a recent one necessarily, but they showed that breast cancer survivors who received information about exercise and a step pedometer, so giving the patients a pedometer, they reported um, reduced fatigue, um, as well as increases in self-reported physical activity and increased quality of life. Um, so now, uh, we 
going to kind of just summarize um, some of the things that we talked about. Um, we, it's important to screen every patient for fatigue at regular intervals. Um, and then the, the NCCN actually gives you kind of these guidelines here if they have no fatigue to mild versus uh, moderate or severe. Um, and then you can kind of just follow this uh, guideline here like this. Um, what I wanted to do really quick was talk about this middle column here where it talks about the, um, uh, the non-pharmacologic and then the general strategies for managing fatigue. Um, this is one of the other ones I think a there are some, where I came from we had some occupational therapists who were really interested in fatigue. Um, in cancer-related fatigue, and there are a lot of like um, you know energy conservation strategies and things um, that you can do, um, and those include the things that are written here, um, like pacing yourself, delegating tasks that you don't necessarily have to do. Uh, we tell patients to schedule their activities so that whatever they need to get done for that day, they do at the time of their peak energy. Most patients with cancer-related fatigue will feel most fatigued at a particular time of day, so late afternoon, early morning, whatever it is. Um, and we can, you know, s teach patients to work around that. Um, using assistive devices, uh, we encourage limiting napping to less than one hour so that they still have good sleep hygiene at the end of the day. Um, attend to one activity at a time, things like that. So these are all strategies that, you know, we in the office may not have time to go through. I try to, but, you know, we don't have all day to discuss those things. And I don't pretend to be an expert in those. But we do have occupational and physical therapists who have an interest in this topic and um, have the time and resources to really work with the patients on this, which is great. And the thing is that the patients can be educated on these strategies and technique in only a few visits. It doesn't have to be a full course of physical therapy. And that's something that I remind the oncologists of. So that's actually the reason that that slide is in there. Um, so these are um, tips to reduce fatigue as per the American Cancer Society. I'll go through these because I don't think um, it's as relevant for us. Um, so the key points are that uh, cancer-related fatigue is common. It's persistent, difficult to treat. Uh, we know, we don't, we're not entirely sure what causes it, but there are associations with anemia, high body mass index, diabetes, uh, some particular tumor types, breast cancer, colon, and uh, liver cancers are more associated with cancer-related fatigue, and I didn't have time to really go into that. The inflammatory cytokines, uh, as I mentioned, are a big uh, cause and one that's really in vogue right now. Insomnia, um, and then cortisol uh, dysregulation, like I mentioned before. One of the most effective level uh, treatments for fatigue is exercise. This is a category one recommendation. So aerobic and resistance exercises have both been found to be effective. And then the, in addition to that, there are the cognitive and behavioral therapy um, interventions that can mitigate the symptoms. And then you can always do the psychostimulants as well. So um, that's kind of the summary of cancer-related fatigue. For more information about the research of Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.